Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 29 of Middle Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gaudet. Uh My name is Pop Gunner, professional hydroplane <laughs> racer. Uh, I'm, I'm here to read us something from the human race survival resistance, Derek. The, the human race survival resistance? Yes, this is important to the uh, survival of the human race. Oh so, boy. Uh, this is a hot new update from them, hot new news update. Oh boy. This is the current plan of Satan Lucifer and his fallen angels mm. and their umbrella company's leader, Tom Cruise, and chief scientist Bill Gates. Whoa, One, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> One, give all the sinful, dumb human homo sapiens, species populace, 33.3% of the Earth's populace are not humans, syringe vaccines in three phases, which contains their gene-altering AI femt- femtotech nanobot chimera genes that will work in together with the 5g towers and the third strain coronavirus covid 19 uh, virus wait there, just a second whoa 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 you there's more subheadings there but I, we'll, I we'll get to those that. in a second i assumed so because of the length of this one but you usually dole out the lunacy a little bit at a time when you're doing these readings you just came in hot what? Should I give context for what's going on? Yes. There's this, I, I want to say group, but I'm pretty sure it's one guy uh, called Human Race Survivor Resistance. You can find them at humanracesurvivorresistance.wordpress.com. Uh, I'm not plugging them. It's not like they have ads. In there. Like the only ad I'm seeing on this website is for DuckDuckGo, which is the search engine you use when you first get on the dark web. Well, that's the search engine um, I use. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I only know about this. Because he used to follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm assuming it's a he. I'm making a lot of assumptions here. I'm pretty sure it's one guy. And I'm pretty sure it's a he. Uh, I apologize if I am stereotyping this person. Oh, man. So is this like is this person like a doomsday prepper? And why did they follow you on Twitter? Um, I think they followed me on Twitter because uh, I was posting about Q stuff. And oh, I don't no. think they got that it was like ironic. Or like a joke. See, this is the see. This is the problem with with you know talking on the internet. You say problem, but like what 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 did I lose? In fact, I gained I gained a friend from from ironically oh. talking about QAnon on Twitter. Speaking that of you're make, uh, that, you're making fun of on your podcast. <laughs> R.I.P. The Storm. Uh, I don't Donald even know Trump. what that is. I don't even know what. Uh, we really don't have time to get into the storm right now. I'm I, sure we'll get into it at a later date. Uh, it's very important. We? All the all the Q heads know what I'm talking about. Oh my lord! Oh, did you hear did there you? was a? Um, I probably didn't. <laughs> did you hear that in Germany, uh, where the servers for the election are located, that there was actually a uh, a shootout recently uh, between the CIA and um, German operatives that were trying to subvert the American election. And uh, you know that CIA officer who was killed recently, quote unquote, in Africa? Well, what? 
he was actually killed in Germany. That's just like a cover for it. Are Same, you reading like, was... copy from this website or no? I'm just I'm reciting things that I've heard on the internet, uh, which is the same thing as reciting truth. God. So number two, a lot of the humans who receive the first three poison vaccines will have their immune system destroyed, so that Satan, Lucifer's Illuminati, NWO, Umbrella Corporations, AI Nanites, oh, MERS, man. SARS, HIV, AIDS, Ebola, hybrid coronavirus, COVID nineteen, COVID twenty one, biological weapon, third strain virus will be powered by the five G remote assassination, sixty hertz weapon to now kill huge numbers of humans. Uh, Straightforward this is, enough. This is vomit of the highest order. Uh, we're only there's like a this is very long actually. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's already oh, a little overwhelming. You don't say. Uh, we're going to read the first three bullet points here. So I'm going to get to number three now. Okay. Uh, the dumb, sinful human Homo sapiens species populace will all panic, and they will all rush to get the fourth phase, Mark of the Beast 666, that's in quotes, biometric ID, luciferase, quantum dot tattoo microneedle patch, QR code, digital currency, AI, femtotech, nanobot, 5G, remote assassination, gene-changing, soul-losing chimera, and fallen angel gene, Bill Gates, Wuhan Borg, hive mind vaccine. Femtotech. Yeah, that's. I'll be honest. That's the one I haven't heard before. I'm assuming like it's something about like the American male being feminized, but do fem to tech. Do do we think that? Oh no. Oh, these... okay. Okay. Hey, it's actually way better. Um, <laughs> fem to technology is a hypothetical term used in reference to structuring of matter on the scale of a femtometer, which is ten to the negative fifteenth uh. meters. So hey, it's it's not <laughs> it's not uh, sexist or transphobic. Or transphobic. Just, that's the one I was afraid of. It's just. Are... Racist and vaguely anti-Semitic. <laughs> oh, okay. It's just racism. Do we do we think that these sort of uh, conspiracy theory space cases have like a style guide they abide to? Well, I will say that like this person is remarkably consistent in how they write. Uh, I got to give it that's up for the them. Question. That's the question. That's the question. That's why I ask. Oh, shit. This, this one actually is, uh, what do you call it? This is much better than the usual one. So I was just going through the blog as a whole. Oh. And Boy. usually it's just it's just this that. Is this how you spend reading. your nights, dog? Not all the time. I mean, occasionally. <laughs> um, but I'm looking at this now, and the interesting thing is that usually he just repeats the same thing over and over again. This one almost has like footnotes and extra footnotes. detailing uh, and explanation. Extra detailing. But the reason I was so fascinated fascinated by this guy in the first place, a because he followed me. Sure. But b is because he reprints. All of his um, tracts, his tracts, that's a good way to put it, in what appears to be um, a, a weird form of Japanese, uh, because it's mostly like hiragana and there's very few kanji, almost like he doesn't totally know the kanji for it. Some form of Chinese, I'm assuming probably Mandarin, but hey, who knows? I'm not that smart. And in some language that is written here in Cyrillic, I'm guessing probably Russian. Um, I don't speak Russian, so Maybe who can Ukrainian. say? Um, maybe. Um, and there is tags for everything. So you can always, you know, if you want to search for pedogate um, specifically oh or spirit cooking ritual, oh, you got no. it right there. Spirit. Um, do I even, do I want to know? I don't, don't I? Spirit cooking ritual was, <laughs> so spirit cooking, you, you know, um, I'm going to mispronounce her name. Uh, the performance artist Marina Ombrovovich. Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. I'm not going to try to say yes. the name, but I know who you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> she was the documentary, the artist's presence. Uh, so she That's did right. a performance piece. Where she did quote unquote spirit cooking. I don't even remember what the full piece was, but it was like some dumb art piece for fucking rich people. It was, it was, it was, I like a lot of her pieces. It was dumb, even by performance art standards. And a lot of QAnon and Pizzagate people 
have come to the oh, opinion I, that, I have heard of this. That spirit cooking is like the idea of them taking blood from children and cooking with that and making like ritual meals out of it, like ritual satanic meals. How have you heard about this, Derek? Steph. Oh, of course. My girlfriend. Course. She's she's not she's not as uh, she's not as uh, in deep in it as as you are, but she's she she uh she she uh, she she knows some stuff. Uh Abramovich. Yes, thank you. Thank you. That is much more correct. I want to read one more of these. Can I read one more? <laughs> if you must. So, uh this is number 4. <clears throat> is it long? And I have one more thing to bring up after this that I think is just it's one of my favorite like uh millennialist Christian things dog we are um, like so, 10 minutes in already we're fine we're fine oh, uh this there's nothing to talk about these fucking movies so who cares there's this, plenty to talk about this these mark movies. of the beast micro needle patch biometric id tattoo will allow them to buy or sell as the bible prophesized and they will be able to go outside or to their workplace to work and it will identify them as being vaccinated like the antichrist cattle branding they will lose their human gene souls so they will never be able to be saved by jesus's atoning blood for instance in the cross their minds will not be controlled by the Illuminati, NWO, Antichrist, AI-like puppets to hate the humans who refuse to take the vaccine and to arrest them and to quarantine them in FEMA Nazi Holocaust camps and exterminate them. All who refuse the Antichrist, Illuminati, NWO, Nazi, Fifth Reich, Atlantis, Thirteenth Reich, Fifth Nephilim, Reich. Civilization Control Nephilim. will be exterminated too. Oh man, I, I, I yearn for the sort of, for, uh, for the idyllic days of like time cubes. I, I yearn to be this person because – okay, okay, here's what I'll say. In this person's conception of the world, uh-huh. this is all pretty simple. Like, like it, it, it reads complex because you're not used to the language. But if you're actually thinking about it, it's very simple. Like everything all relates back to the same conspiracy. There is exactly one reason everything is happening. The systemic problems exist in one system that has one source. And everything's easy. Like, everything's terrible. And the uh, Antichrist, Illuminati, NWO, Nazi, Fifth Reich, Atlantis, 13th Reich, Nephilim civilization is a problem. But you have the answers. Whereas, like, for me, it's like, oh, shit, if we want to look at, like, like racial disenfranchisement, we have to think about, like, the history and context of that in this country. And also, like... The ways in which, like, the bourgeois use those ideas against the proletariat to, like, re- reduce class consciousness and the ways in which liberalism plays into that. It, it becomes a whole fucking thing. And there's a lot of different ways to come at it. And you can't be certain that you're correct. You can just have good ideas based on a theoretical understanding that is always changing and updating based on new things you learn. This person I has it already. in the world. Yes, this person... By not living in the world, does not. Live They've in the world. answered all the questions, uh, uh, and <laughs> I, I'm jealous. I'm. I wish I could be that person. I also wish this is my long-standing wish is that I wish I could, like, I wish I had no morals so I could just be a grifter <laughs> because, like, I could do some right-wing grifts pretty easy. If like I knew everything I knew in my brain right now, and I was like, I want to make money as a right-winger on the internet. I could. I'm like, I guarantee you, I could. It's not hard. Uh, it's actually very, very easy. And most of them are just terrible at it. Like Dave Rubin was able to do it. And he's a, he's a fucking dumbass. Like Dave Rubin is a dumb man. And I don't he know was who somehow. Dave Rubin is. Oh, good. That's, that's, that's good. Well, okay. he, he, he's part of the dumbass versus cynical dichotomy. Whereas like a dumbass is Dave Rubin and cynical is Ben Shapiro. Whereas like both of them are saying things that aren't true. 
I think Ben Shapiro knows that half the time and is purposely doing it because he knows it'll rile his audience up. Whereas um, Dave Rubin is just a dumb man who doesn't really know much of anything. <laughs> We're getting up to 15 minutes. Um, so, uh, <laughs> as I said, um, I'm Pop Gunner. That's Derek. Derek, what is this podcast about? I guess it's, uh, I don't even know anymore. You're co- you're coming in with these like stacks of decommissioned fucking <laughs> the, the the this radioactive Q garbage, and I'm like, well, I just want to talk about Psycho, man. <laughs> like an uh, idiot, like I, fucking I, Charlie Brown in the football. I just want to talk about some fucking movies. I want to talk about Mako, The Jaws of Death, or Racing uh, Fever, or Stanley, The Hook Generation, Sting of Death. These are all films by William Grief. Which, uh, my name's Isabel Arf. I should, I should, I should let go wait, are you, of the... Wait, are you pivoting to a second bit? No, I'm explaining a bit. I, oh. Because I, I just refer to myself as Pop Gunner, and I feel like I should tell that's people right. that's a joke. My that's name is not, not Pop name. Gunner, as much as I wish it was. It's a joke because the other day I, re- I found out about a man named William Grief, or Greff, who was a director in Florida who made a film called Racing Fever. He made a lot of other films, like with Killer Mako Sharks, Killer like uh jellyfish one about like a man who has psychic control of rattlesnakes but Sounds racing like a fever. kind of a regional b-movie director of some kind i guess yeah i i'm i'm interested in moving into his filmography racing fever uh is the first full-length feature speedboat film which is quite a distinction that it was shot on location cool, in maybe. miami racing fever is concerned with a professional hydroplane racer named pop gunner who's getting nice. ready for one last race before passing his crown on to his son lee Pop's main, competition. <laughs> Pop's main competition is the wealthy but oily Greg Stevenson, who also the happens to be having an oily? affair. Yeah, wealthy but oily. Who also <laughs> happens to be having an affair with Pop's daughter Linda. Oh boy. <laughs> I didn't have much to say about that. There's not really a, like a point to this joke. I just think the Pop Gunner <laughs> is such a delightful name that uh I've det- I'm determined to make it my own. Uh but we're not talking about racing fever today. <laughs> No, we aren't. We're talking about four uh, four very different films. Um, so the gimmick of the podcast is not just 50 minutes of Isabel just reading shit at me, and then we talk about movies a little bit. Even though it's, that's, it's becoming much more of that, to be fair. This is, I mean, this like if I were being 100% honest with myself, I would, I would sit here in my chair and say, okay, so this podcast is basically 50 minutes at the top of Isabel reading some shit she found on the internet. Then, like, an hour of us talking about movies and fighting away the demon, like, and beating away the demon dogs of tangents away. And futilely, because we always go on tangents. By the end of this first round, it's going to be, like, 90% tangent, and at the end we're just going to be like, oh yeah, these two movies win. Anyways, next episode. What are we going to do? I hate to digress while I'm introducing <laughs> This one's not show. even my fault. Thank you. But, see, when I digress, it's often about the show. And I do want to do that right now. What the hell is going to happen to our show? What the hell is going to happen to our tangent-to-content ratio when we've already seen every fucking movie and talked about them at least one time? I shudder to think, Isabel. My my non-ironic response is that what I'm planning to do is go through and listen to what we've already discussed and make like a spreadsheet before us before we talk and be like, hey, <laughs> it's what we've already talked about. Let's not hit these guys again. That's probably a good idea, but that would take a lot of time. Eh, yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But for now, the gimmick as of the far podcast, as I, all, all I know is that the words have been heard, the test is complete, 
And the signs of an unrepentant degenerate is one who attacks with unjustified accusations against God, messengers of love. For them, only the testing by fire is left. Uh, is that is is that our friend in the uh, the, the 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 group, the organization you referenced earlier? <laughs> yes, the Human Race Survivor Resistance. There we go. The gimmick of the podcast, uh, friends and loyal listeners, and you are loyal if you are still listening this deep into the show, uh, is that uh, way back when, in the halcyon days of our show, back in 2018, uh, we uh, Isabel uh, came to me with her stone tablets, and upon those tablets were chiseled the names of 250 movies, and we arranged those names, or she arranged those names, into a a 256 film bracket those 250 movies corresponded to the top 250 films uh on the internet movie databases top 250 films of all time plus to fill out that bracket of 256 we added three movies each that had a similar score vote total to the movies on the bottom there are plans, if you will. And the gimmick of this podcast is to um, basically pit movies against each other until we get to the greatest movie of all time, Asterisk. Uh, and I say Asterisk because there's more than 256 movies that exist. And for all we know, the best movie of all time isn't here. But we're looking to find the best movie of these 256. I think I made the same joke, uh, the same joke uh, an episode or two ago, but... I don't know if any of these movies have a shot, but <laughs> let's get let's give them the time of day anyway. Because hey, they qualified, they're in the bracket, and they're on the show. What ringing endorsement for these films? I mean, I think okay. There's one clear favorite, and three other ones that have no shot. Mm, yeah, you're. I mean, right. I, I was gonna try I to mean, like <laughs> argue with that, but like even me, like I, I my ultimate contrarian stance, I can't. I told Derek before we started this episode that I have no strong feelings on any of these films. Uh, I'm going to try to make it interesting anyways, because that makes it sound like this episode's going to be shit. But hey. This might be a Derek episode, because I have some things to say. Sure. I might have some insight. Or just thoughts, you know? I'll just browse these corset websites and see what sales (laughs) are having. Pay attention! (laughs) Um, This is a two-person operation as well. What are we starting with? What are we talking about here? Okay, two matchups today. So we are going to be doing uh, To Kill a Mockingbird versus Gran Torino and Psycho versus La La Land. Uh, so why don't we get right to it? Tale of the tape for our first match. The 96th seed, the 96th best film of all time, To Kill a Mockingbird. Now I just want to pull up my tab here because I'm operating with my phone. Released in 1962, directed by Robert Mulligan. Uh, written by Horton Foote, based on the novel by Harper Lee. Uh, it stars Gregory Peck, Mary Batum, Philip Alford, John Megna, Ruth White, Paul Fix, Brock Peters, and Frank Overton. Also, Robert Duvall shows up for a little bit, but he's not top bill or anything because he's in it for like five minutes. Um, $2 million budget, $13 million take, and a uh, critical darling nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Academy Awards winning three, including Best Art Direction, Black and White, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor for Gregory Peck. Versus the 162 seed, which I gotta say is pretty fucking impressive for this movie, Gran Torino, released in 2008, directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Nick Schenck, uh, starring Clint Eastwood, uh, and weirdly he's the only cast listed, there's other people in here, Clint Eastwood, <laughs> B. Vang, Annie Her, Christopher Carley, and Doug Moore, 
let's see. John uh, Carroll Lynch. John Carroll Lynch shows up for like five minutes as a uh, as a as, racist as, barber. <laughs> as, as maybe the worst character, but yeah. Uh, I love John Carroll Lynch, but what the fuck? We'll get to it. Yes. Um, budgeted at approximately 25, 30-ish billion dollars. Made 270 grand. This is one of Clint's biggest hits. His second biggest grossing movie of all time, right? I think, and I think number one is American Sniper, is it not? Pretty sure that's correct. I'm going to Google it as you talk, just to figure this out. All right, cool. Uh, Let's see. And I don't think it was an Oscar player, though it was well-received. No, it was was not in the Oscars, which was very surprising for, you know, humans. I don't... Yeah. (laughs) Some people really like... Like, the Clinton Taurus really went for this movie. The Clinton Taurus go for fucking anything. I don't think that counts. (laughs) I think, like, if the Clinton Taurus will go to bat for fucking any Clint Eastwood movie, because... A lot of those movies are good, though. That's the thing. A lot of those movies are fine. Um, and yes, American Sniper was the higher grossing one, but Gran Torino was second. Which was an Oscar, which was an Oscar kind of player, that yeah, one. Yeah, uh, but Americans not this just one. love when you shoot brown people. Uh, it turns out. <laughs> um, I haven't you, seen American Sniper. It's, here's what I'll say. I think, I think that the, I think it's a bad movie that has really interesting takes about it. Like, I think reading people try to argue that it's not a right-wing movie is more interesting than the actual movie itself because it is a right-wing movie. <laughs> Clint is Clint. Let's not get it twisted. But we'll talk We'll talk about Clint Eastwood in due time. First, we're going to talk Did about... Did you know that uh, um, his character in Gran Torino has his own Wikipedia page? Yeah, it sure does. People really like this movie. Um, but I, yes, we're going to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, right? We are going to talk about Best Picture nominee, loser, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, a little bit of table setting. I have not read the book because I did, but a, it was in. I was like fourteen. This is the thing. I a I am not as well read as I would like to be, and b uh, I never. It was never required reading, which you know maybe you can shed some light on this. Is is definitely the case for Americans? It's like you read this book in high school straight up. I feel like earlier than high school. Like it's usually more like a middle school book. It's middle school. Okay, so I have I came into this as like. Um, I, I, like, I have no context for this other than it being kind of like a kind of, well, you know, as, as is appropriate for the, for this show, a very kind of middle brow. It's in that cycle of like late, mid to late fifties, early sixties cycle of sort of well-meaning liberal movies about, you know, about trust in the institutions and stuff like that. And I wasn't even really familiar with the plot of To Kill a Mockingbird all that much when I was watching this. And the thing that struck me about this was, it, well, it was weird. It was twofold. I think this is, a, this is an interesting pair of movies next to each other. Because structurally, I feel that both of these movies, uh, Gran Torino and to, Killing Mocking, to Kill a Mockingbird, are two movies, kind of like two different movies trying to coexist within one narrative. Yes. And neither of them quite succeed in gelling the two. This movie is fine. <laughs> I, I think it's okay. Hot take. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think what I said on my letterbox is like the most, in, it's, I guess, the most insightful thing I have to say about this. Not to like, not to like, you know, toot my own horn or anything, but like, is the, the sort of, uh, the G. Willikers loss of innocence in the South part works not quite as well. I mean, the kid actors are great. Um, if you say so, sure. Uh, they, I mean, they're supposed to be like nine and six. And then, I mean, I think we got spoiled with like, uh, 
with like uh, with Jacob Tremblay in room. Sh- sure, but that doesn't mean that we have to like lavish praise on people who don't deserve it. I said they were fine. I mean, that's not praise. I mean, they weren't bad by no means. Uh, Gregory Peck was also good in that sort of like naturalistic. Gregory Peck way. I mean, I, I think I told you in the chat that uh, Peck is like uh, Sean Connery. You you hire him to play Gregory Peck, a Gregory Peck type. Yes. And sometimes that's all you need. And uh, and Robert Mulligan is a re- director that I was not familiar with and appears to be sort of like in the school of like sort of um, almost like uh, Carpenter-esque not John Carpenter, but as in like artisan-esque studio directors, where everything is very sort of competently put together, but doesn't really have any flash to it, doesn't have really a, a thumbprint to it. Everything looks kind of flat. It's weird because this is like a prestige movie, but it looks like a B movie. There's like nothing to it. Yeah, this was like the last of the... He, he seemed like he came up in the last period where the studio was the helm of a movie. Instead right. of like the directors, like like the new American, like the new Hollywood would push in the seventies, he was kind of one of those people before that. That was he was there to do a job, and he could turn out that job super well. And he wasn't really there to give his distinctive style to it. He wasn't there to get to give it a voice. That was the producer's job. That was you know the people who were actually handing over the money job. Like the guy worked for thirty five years steadily, and I don't know. Any of these movies. <laughs> yeah, no, I like, I haven't heard of fucking any of these. It's just ridiculous. And I recognize I, I recognize Fear Strikes Out by name alone and To Kill a Mockingbird, obviously, but beyond that, nothing rings a bell. That's not that's not necessarily damning Robert Mulligan. That's just like this is not a guy and he was nominated for best director for this. I guess a little goes a long way. But like <laughs> I, I don't know, I didn't see it. I'm on his Wikipedia page, and I just saw this, and I have to read it. Um, actor James Kahn yeah, described, James Conn fucking hates him. <laughs> described him, meaning Mulligan, as the most incompetent filmmaker he has ever worked with, saying a lot of mediocrity was produced following their work on Kiss Me Goodbye in, in 1982. Kahn cited his experiences as the key reason why he made no movies for five years from 82 to 87. Holy that shit. Is, <laughs> that's not exactly a high praise. Yeah, and, like, I don't, like, clearly the man is not incompetent. I mean, the, like, it's, like, dull, maybe, but not incompetent. Like, I don't want, like, I've been talking a lot. And I've been, uh, I've been saying a whole lot of nothing, basically. This, like, basically, I've just said, this movie's okay. This movie's fine. And I don't want to blow up your spot. Can I blow up your spot? Uh, sure. I don't know what my spot is here, but. You gave this movie one star on Letterboxd. <laughs> yeah. It's not good. It's, I, I think I, I just said it was dreadful. That was my entire review. Just dreadful. Like, like that, like, cause like, obviously we don't use, you know, even though we're using the same kind of scale, like the ratings don't mean anything, even if we give the same rating, right? Um, if I were to give something yeah. one star and if you were to give something one star, that doesn't mean the same thing. No, it is I want to know why you gave this movie system. one star. Why did I give this movie one star? Um, one, I thought it was terminally boring. Like, I, it's very leisurely. It's very leisurely. Like that's a, like that's a, a, like a very a kind way south. to put it. Like a hot day in the south. I found it like tedious, and I also weirdly, I found it hard to track. Mostly just because I was like, "What is the central point of this? Like, what are we actually trying to get at?" Because I feel like there's nothing happening, and like, yes, there's these incidents that happen here and there slowly over the course of way too long of a runtime 
different things will happen. But I'm sure if I sat down and actually like chose to think about this movie, like more for more than a second, I'd be able to devise some sort of oh, here's the overarching theme. Here's how like like Boo Radley combines with um, I don't remember his name, which is actually one of the problems with the film. Atticus Finch. No, Tom Robinson. Uh, yes, Tom okay. Robinson. I think that's a problem that we're going to bring up in a second. Um, but I, I, I was going to bring it up. I yes. was going to tie into like sort of my feeling on the arc of this. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't really... I mean, I get in a very loose sense how those are related, but I don't feel the film actually like makes an argument about it. It just kind of is like, hey, prejudice, huh? What about that? Um, also, like, here's this guy who looks like he is the drummer in a psychobilly group, and he saved these young children. Cool. Love it. Great. Robert Duvall this? What? Is that is that, is that Rob- Robert? Oh, that was Robert Duvall as Boo Radley? Boo Radley? Yeah. Baby oh. baby Bobby. Yeah, he he looks like a like like with his Please like bond. like stark white hair and everything like that. Yes, to me he looks like okay. like the drummer in a psychobilly band. But what's the name of Boo Radley's psychobilly band? The Boo Radleys. Oh, there you go. That's good. I like that. That's a good joke. That's um, an easy one. <laughs> that's the only jokes I make. So <laughs> The fact that I couldn't remember the name of the the black man in this film who is falsely accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. That is the that is the core of this film. That is what people remember about this film. Um that is theoretically the like the center around which the rest of this movie rotates. And I couldn't remember his fucking name because he's not a character. He doesn't he doesn't do anything. He doesn't seem to have a personality. He is just black guy who is falsely accused which yes it is terrible that he was falsely accused i shouldn't need to say that obviously sure but maybe he should be a person who has like feelings and opinions on things instead of just someone who sits there apparently just to be saved and doesn't <laughs> yes and and isn't um which like oh damn this movie's like real man like it talks about real prejudice but um I mean, you say. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Here, here, here. The Last thing I have to say, uh, say in this context, uh, that before you rebut me, is I think it is telling that even Roger Ebert, like good old liberal humanitarian Roger Ebert, who I've often criticized as being far too like centrist and conservative, said of this movie, it expresses the liberal pieties of a more innocent time, the early 1960s, and it goes very easy on the realities of small town Alabama in the 1930s. One of the most dramatic scenes shows a lynch mob facing Atticus, who is all by himself on the jailhouse steps the night before Todd Robinson's trial. The mob is armed and prepared to break in and hang Robinson, but Scout bursts onto the scene, recognizes a poor farmer who has been befriended by her father, and shames him and all the other men into leaving. Her speech is a calculated strategic exercise, masked as the innocent words of a child. One shot of her eyes shows she realizes exactly what she's doing. Could a child turn away a lynch mob at that time in that place? Isn't it nice to think so? I think that's pretty damning. Like, wait, hold on. Give me a second. Hello? Give me a second. I think I heard someone walking around my apartment. I'm going to make sure I'm not going to die. Okay. Great news, I'm not gonna die. You good? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's just 
um what do you call it i'm like you know when i talked about that the weird incidents that have been happening in my house uh-huh i'm like 90 percent convinced there's a ghost in my house <laughs> which you've been talking one too much uh, apparently um but no, like, okay, here, here's my evidence. Uh, this is going to be a short di- digression for everyone who just heard me leave the room because um, I thought I was going to die. Are you going to keep that in? I might. It depends on how funny, how interesting this digression is. So, uh, Hold on, I want, don't want to lose my place in my point. Let me take some notes. Okay. So um, here's my evidence for haunting. Number one is two nights in a row. Um, and this has happened a couple other times as well. I could have sworn I heard someone loudly running across my living room floor while I was in my bedroom and ready to go to sleep. And it wasn't like, oh, soft pitter-patter, like a kitty cat. It was like a large child about, like that, like, boom, 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 you can kind of hear, uh, especially since I am on the top floor. So there's that extra bit of, like, resonance to footsteps in my house, especially if they're heavy. Mm-hmm. So I've heard that a couple times. Each time I've gone to look, there's no one in the apartment. Everything is locked. I've checked the cupboards, I've checked every single room, and it's there's no one else in here. Um, last night, I heard some, I heard someone in my kitchen, and I went to go look. Same thing. I just heard someone walking around my apartment just now. Uh, that's why I got up to like go and check it, and there wasn't shit out there. Like I'm sure of it. And this is gonna sound insane. I'm just prefacing this, but you know me, I'm a big fan of stuffed animals. I got a, a shit ton of them. You got him in my yeah, bedroom. You got a, you got a little, a, a little cotton menagerie there. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I quite like that that joke. Uh, this there's one. It's this little rabbit that um, rabbit. is currently sitting on my headboard uh, with some other friends, and mm-hmm. I've positioned him so that or, or her. Sorry, I've positioned her so that she is facing forward, like facing out towards the bed, and I swear to God. Multiple times I have come home and she is facing the opposite direction. And I don't remember doing that. At the same time, here's me being rational about all these things. Number one, I probably just moved it and forgot. Or maybe I was grabbing something else from the headboard and I accidentally moved it and didn't notice. I don't know what I'd be grabbing. There's nothing else up there. But hey, I was sleeping. That's where I sleep. Maybe I did something weird. Or maybe there's like some weird vibration in the wall that causes it to turn around. Maybe you're just knocking the headboard. Maybe. Um, and somehow turning, making that one turn around and nothing else happened. And yeah. uh, it's it, not it, as much sense as anything else. It, it is possible. And uh, as far as the noises go, uh, it could just be that those are hypnagogic auditory hallucinations, um, which are definitely something that okay. happens and I've experienced before. Um, I will say that the first two times I heard the running noise, um, I was about to go to sleep. So I was very ready to discount it as that then. But since then, I have heard it while I've been sitting up in bed with the lights on. So that's the situation in my apartment, um, is that I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm also 90% sure there's a ghost in my apartment. Unless there is someone living in my walls who is somehow like going out at night or going out in the middle of my podcast recording for some reason. Um, and I don't know, grabbing some seaweed that like is all I eat. <laughs> so you got like a parasite situation going on? I've never, I've never seen Parasite, so I don't get that. Oh God, you're right. But um, you will one one day you'll watch Parasite and you'll be ah oh, fuck that was funny. If you say so, <laughs> um, uh, no more more like that guy that um, it's my favorite murder case. Uh, I hate being that person because like I I I don't like <laughs> oh, true crime no. podcasts. Like I think they're really annoying oh, and tedious. No. But 
there's this one um, murder case that I really want to make a movie of, uh, specifically like a really weird experimental version of the story. Uh, and it was this, I believe they were Polish, uh, this Polish family in like the early 1900s. And I apologize for this diversion, by the way. I promise I'll get back to it after we this are, one. We are so I apologize that I will get back to it after this one. I promise. There was this Polish family who lived on a farm, uh, like, you know, like in the early 1900s, as you do. In Poland. I want someone to diagram one of our podcasts for digression. <laughs> Color code them to see who starts them. Uh, this family uh, had noticed a couple of weird things happening. Like they lost a pair of their keys and uh, they like thought they heard noises during the middle of the night, but they had no idea what, what it was. And then um, all of a sudden they don't show up for church one day. And all of their, the people in, in the, the society, the town, that's what it's called. <laughs> Um, they they live in a society. Uh, they all the people in this town go and be like, "Hey, what's up with them?" Uh, and what's up with that? <laughs> and they get there, and they're like, "Hey, there's no one in the house. That's kind of weird. What's in the barn?" And there's just dead bodies piled up in the barn. And essentially, what was determined uh, to be the case is that someone was living in their house for a couple days. Uh, and was waiting for them essentially to get back home and killed them. And then here, uh, there, there's two really creep, creepy parts of this story, in my opinion. Um, uh, not, not, not the living in the walls, not the fact that they were stacked in the barn like fucking corded wood. I don't think he was living in the walls. I think he was like in the attic or some shit. Um, uh, and I don't no, have an no. attic for what it's worth. So that's, that's, I got that going for me. Uh, the two creepy details are that the, they determined that these people had been dead for a couple days now. But um, the livestock had been fed that day that they went to go to go find them. And the neighbors didn't know there was anything wrong until Sunday because they had seen smoke coming out from the chimney. So the killer was just in their house for a couple days, feeding their livestock nicely enough. So that's one creepy bit. And that's actually the part I want to make the movie about. I just want to have like, oh, they're already dead. And now we're just watching this killer live like silently. Just feed cows. Yeah. Um, I think it would be a nice little, and like, like it ends as soon as like he hears the people coming up, like the, it's not a driveway because there wasn't cars then, but you know what I mean? The the path to their house. Um, and then the other creepy detail, which I, f- I feel like if I was this family, I, I would be kicking myself for not investigating this farther. From beyond the grave. <laughs> Is that um, once, uh, like a couple days before this happened and... All this information we know about these events was actually because uh, one of the fam- family, mem- family members relayed this information to someone in the town. Um, and I believe their, their housekeeper also relayed this information. Is that they, they found a set of footprints leading up to the house that never went back to the forest. And at that point, wouldn't you go, hey, let's check out the house real quick. Let's see what's <laughs> up because that's a little weird. But hey, I'm not here to judge them. If we all make mistakes. Uh, some mistakes are worse than others, but yeah, that's the story of my favorite murder. Uh, so and that and and that was uh, and now we're back from being an episode of my favorite murder, and now we're we're back in the, we're back in the uh, the uh, the Middlebar Madness stack. We're not done talking about the first movie, and we're about to we're we're cross the forty minute mark. I'm right? done talking about the first movie. What do you got to say about it? I've got just a couple of other things. Raj was right. I think this movie suffers from the same problem as The Help suffered from. It's like, this is clearly, well, one, 
uh, Raj's right. I mean, certainly the, and you were right. You brought up this point earlier. It's like maybe the black people should have been a bit more centered and a bit more sketched out, a bit more present, but no one in this movie is sketched out. So let's not worry about it too much. Um, but I do think this movie has sort of a key problem in terms of how the story is centered because this movie at the very least should not be about the kids. It should be about Atticus Finch (laughs) because, you know, in a, in a movie of thin characters, he's the best one. Uh, you know, Gregory casting Gregory Peck goes a long way. But I do think that there's, I don't think this movie is subversive in any way, but I do think that it is unique in uh, among this particular cycle of sort of more liberal films or liberal films from the 50s and 60s that I've seen in that you you do the fucking big set piece at the courthouse. The lead character gives this impassioned speech about decency and the American way and being right and look in your heart and you know it to be true. And it doesn't work. I think that's really interesting. It's like, it goes wrong in about every way you would expect. Like, an innocent man dies. uh, Everyone of interest dies. And it's ugly and it's no fun. And, like, it it betrays... Like, I think the movie, if you kind of, like, look, look at it askance a little bit, is a movie about, like, the unreliability of hearsay. But it's mostly about the failure of the weaponization of decency in great institutions. Like, that shit doesn't work. We like to think it works like the great, the great man Roger Ebert said, but it doesn't. Wouldn't it be great if the fans of this film had realized that ever? I mean, I, th- I think it's a few notches short of being great. I think it's good. I think it's okay. I think Gregory Peck is awesome in it. Uh, okay. Oh, I really liked the intro credit sequence. It was very Saul Bass-esque. I was surprised that he didn't do them. Okay. I have nothing to say about any of these things, I'll be honest. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I found, it, I found it tedious and dreadful, but I'm glad that you liked it. I mean, I thought it was okay. <laughs> um, but let's talk about Gran Torino. Yeah. Uh, because what a Gordian knot of <laughs> racial tension this is. Yes, I, I will say this is, I think this is the most interesting film we're going to talk about because there's, this film is before, at war yeah, with itself. So. Constantly. So what is Gran Torino about? <laughs> <laughs> Gran Torino is about uh, an old man uh, sure. who... Uh, played by our director, Star. Cla- yes, played by uh, Clint Eastwood, who hates everyone, especially people who aren't white, uh, and especially his kids. Uh, and He's very cantankerous, one might say. He's, he is quite cantankerous, grumpy. He's a grumpy old man. And um, he essentially intervenes in a... Gang violence incidents between uh, Hmong uh, teenagers and uh, nurses one of them back to human decency. I don't know what like right like like he mentors well, the, he mentors well, Tao the, uh, who was the the who attempted to steal uh, Clint's prize Grand Torino to be able to get in Grand with Torino this gang. Title. And when he fails, but not because yeah, not necessarily because he wants to be in a gang, but no, uh, our, our, I, the the arc of our character Tao, who is the character played by, let me pull up his name, Bivang, Bivang, that's right, um, is just a wet noodle. Yes, <laughs> he is in the uh, uncharitable words of the film, uh, a pussy is is what he's called. And uh, much much worse is said over the course of the film. I, I feel like I, feel like, I, like I didn't actually explain this plot well enough, so I'm going to actually do a real version of this for once. Okay, so, go ahead. Walt Kowalski, which is uh, Clint Eastwood's yep. character, is recently widowed. His family sucks mm-hmm. ass; like they're terrible. 
And he's just a grumpy old bastard who is really mad that there is a like large population of like uh, of Hmong people who have moved in recently. That's right. And who live next door to him specifically, like uh, like one family lives next door to him. I think it's implied that the neighborhood is becoming increasingly um, non-white. Yes. Let's put it that way. And one of his neighbors... This is said in Detroit, by the way. Yes. And one of his neighbors, uh, Tao, is that teenager we talked about who starts out as a wet noodle, ends it as a slightly less wet noodle, as a a damp noodle instead. And he attempts to steal the Grand Torino as like part of a gang initiation that he doesn't seem to want to engage in. He just like, he's being forced into doing it. And when he fails... Uh, the gang essentially attempts to hurt him on the on the lawn of his house. And when they spill over onto Clint's side of the property, Clint, of course, comes out with a gun because he's a Korean war vet and has guns all over the house. And mm-hmm. the uh, family next door, uh, consisting of uh, Tao, Sue, and a couple older people, like him, and he warms up to them over the course of the film. And then at the end, the gang violence explodes again, and Walt sets out to make it right. Is that, is that a fair plot summary? I think that's a that's a fair plot summary of Gran Torino. And, and the reason I'm, I was having trouble with it is because there's essentially two plots here. There's one plot there is. about the gang violence and about this changing neighborhood and the you know the the complexities of poor situations or, or, or like situations among like poor people of color. And then there's Clint's story where he takes this wet noodle and has him do a lot of manual labor and turns him into a decent kid and ends up becoming slightly less racist by getting to know this family and getting to care for this family. Still plenty bigoted, but he'll barbecue for he'll barbecue for him. He will cook them steaks while he makes jokes about the fact that they're made out of dog. Get it? Because they're Asian. Ha 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 ha. And this is this is the thing. <laughs> well, here's the weird thing: is that this film is both weirdly honest and weirdly artificial and dishonest at the same time. Yes, it's two completely clashing tones. You've got on the one hand the kind of like very naturalistic, like it's there. There is an honesty to this film where even if an old racist white guy uh, cozies up to like his neighbors of color, whoever it may be. Doesn't immediately become not racist. Yes. And that that rings true. This is true in this film and it's true in real life. I mean, we, 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 I mean Isabel and I both have relatives. Yes. Who, uh, the, fa- the thing that I, I, I genuinely kind of really like about his characterization, A, I think that after like the first 30 or so minutes, I kind of found miserable, I'll be honest. And I was messaging you during them because the first 30 minutes is just uh, Clint Eastwood saying a lot of racial slurs. And his family being just the fucking worst. Uh, like, his family is hilariously shitty. It, yeah. it It's it's kind of amazing. Spoiled, entitled. Uh, it's like, you're, like, damn kids. They're, like, laughing during his wife's funeral. Which is, like, okay, I get that they're shitty. Like, like, like the kids in this family are shitty. Fine. But. Hey, Pop Pop, what are you going to do with your car when you die? Yeah. But like, like, like during this funeral of their grandmother, even if they don't care about their grandmother, they're not going to be like fucking joking around, uh, like joshing with each other and laughing. Yeah, that's their mother's funeral, dog. But yeah, so like, the, like I said, the first like half of half hour or so of this, I was not there for. But then, when the scene that turned me around was when Sue, uh, after yeah, Tao and Sue 
When Tao and Sue start becoming real players. Yes, uh, when... Oh, well, not even, like, with, with Tao. Like, Tao takes a while to get going. Like, he was, he's, he's not really a character till like, the second hour. But um, when Walt and Sue actually become friends, because Walt saves Sue from... I'm assuming being sexually assaulted is what's implied there. Yeah, he just he dirty Harry's just three dudes on the corner. Yeah, and I will say that this scene gave me a very negative Ugh. view of Ani Her as an actor actress because I think she's terrible in it. Uh, like like the insults that she's throwing at her would be assaulters are so They're hammy, and she clearly is not. They're so clearly artificial that it, it just doesn't work. I will say the rest of the movie, she's much better. It's just this scene does not show her very well. I like that because uh, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the Hmong actors are like non-pros. And this, except for this one scene where clearly it's like sort of canned stuff, it works to this movie's advantage. This movie, like Isabel said, it's very naturalistic, but it's also startlingly artificial at points. Yes. But after that scene, after Walt saves Sue and they kind of have like a chit chat in the car where he's being racist to her, she's being mean to him, and they're like, ha ha ha, aren't we friends now? And then she <laughs> invites him over to... Does that... Do you think that happens? I think so. Or is this part of this No, I, I think, I think that does like actually fantasy. happen. Like, I think that that is not as weird of a thing as some people think it is. I think that there are plenty of white people who have friends that aren't white, who they say racist things towards, and who... That is just part of their weird friendship. Their rapport. And their like, rapport. Like John Carroll Lynch a little later. Yeah. Uh, obviously John Carroll Lynch is white, but yeah, same idea. And when they, when Sue invites Walt over to this party at their house, and they start actually talking and having conversations, and he's slightly softening up and becoming less of just the most insufferable prick, it ends up being like like genuinely like very charming, and that's when the Clint Eastwood that we know, who is a genuinely charming actor, kind of comes out. And it's also where the weirder parts of the movie come out, like the weirder politics of the film, because he never stops saying slurs, but he clearly also right, has an never. affection towards these people, like a genuine affection. 100%. And I think there's... There's there's both something worthwhile to that depiction, and also something pretty reactionary to it, which is like I don't think it's very like anti PC quote unquote, like right oh like it's it's not about what words you call people it's about like how you treat them and that is actually true in a very broad sense like I think like is that bad writing or is that writing to character like the line is so fine I think it it sways back and forth pretty well. Like, like, not pretty well, like, pretty commonly. Like, throughout. And it's one of the... It's when we talk about the movie being at war with each other, I feel like that's one of the bigger things. There's always that tension. Yeah, and, and, and just to, like, like finish a slight point with the, with the political thing, I do think that it is a worthwhile point to say the words you say aren't as important as the actions you do. Uh, because mm. we all know plenty of, quote-unquote, liberal people who will say all the right words and then treat people like shit. Plenty of, sure. of quote-unquote Christians who will do the same thing. Sure. And yes, I am all for caring about materialist action more than niceties. But at the same time... At <laughs> the same time. At the same don't, time, don't, don't just do call people racial slurs for no reason. Like, come on. Yeah, that's like... It's not hard. That was my sh that was my thing in the movie. I'm sorry. I should, I should let you keep going. No, because the thing is, I, I'm just actually going through uh, our chat because we talked when I was watching this movie. And um, 
there's uh, so I guess I'll just like read some of uh, I'll just read some of those because sure let's just let's just call them my notes. Uh, this movie could have lost like forty minutes of Expo. You were talking about how tedious the first bit was. Mm-hmm. Um, Granddad is clearly trying to extend an olive branch of some kind. Yes, uh, they do the oh hello coughing into a napkin <laughs> bit like five times. That is particularly funny. Like the fact that it just keeps happening over and over again. And do we ever learn? what it is like he he has cancer right that's the implication he has like he has something but we never learn what it is but yes. i presume that he feels okay with sacrificing himself in the manner of jesus christ because he totally <laughs> t-poses himself on the fucking ground after he gets shot at the end spoilers it. uh it's got see it's fucking stupid but there's other shit in this movie like, yeah it's, uh, so, so that scene specifically like I, we already we're to give the spoiler he he dies in the end but he dies in the end that's... He sacrifices himself to basically get all the other dudes arrested because he's not packing heat, which is a nice kind of flip because yes, Clint that... is packing heat the whole film. Mm-hmm. That specifically is both smart choices and dumb choices just combined together in such a strange way because right. I think it is a really smart choice for th- the last like 15 minutes of the film um, because uh, Sue gets sexually assaulted by the gang. Comes up real fucked up. Yeah. Her and Tao's... House gets shot up. Luckily, no one else dies in that. And the implication is for like the last 15 minutes that uh, Clint is going to take revenge, that Walt is going to take revenge, that he's getting right. everything together so he can go and just shoot this place up and kill everyone inside. Like the ending of Unforgiven. <laughs> yes, very much so. And it is even to the extent that he has been resisting going to confession this entire film. Even though uh, the local pri- the local pri- priest um, in the Catholic Church is insistent that before she died, uh, Walt's wife wanted him to go to confession. So he goes to confession and he tells uh, Tao that they need to plan everything. They need to make sure it's perfect. And just every implication is that he's going to enact violence on these people. Instead, he sacrifices himself. He dies purposefully without a weapon on him so that way there's no way for these people who shot him to claim self-defense and he makes such a big show of it that everyone in the neighborhood is looking out their windows at this situation so there's a million witnesses, witnesses. and i think that's, that's a, good that's, a that, great, that's good screenplay yeah, it's writing. great great screenwriting i i genuinely really liked that ending um but there's the there's <laughs> There's the dumb shit like, oh, he falls back and he's literally in a T-pose like he's Jesus Christ. Like, do you get it? Are you getting it? Are you understanding? Like, yep, got it. We're all good. Or just like the dialogue in that last scene is also really weird and like stilted and strange. And because it's almost as if like, and this, I just thought about this. So maybe this is, this is not like a fully cooked take, but it's like, there's a stiltedness to everything Clint says in this film except for like three times where he's being intense and like real <laughs> it's almost as if he's like wearing everything else he says like a suit because it's expected of him yeah I, I, I think that so much of his exterior is artificial and like he has created a tough exterior because that is what he believes he has to do and that is what is mm-hmm. like you said expected of him and that is how he interacts with people but that's how men talk. <laughs> yes, in the worst scene in the fucking film. There are the moments where that drops are really more affecting because of that. So I can't even say right. I, I don't like the choice. It's just it's a choice got, that I'm wrestling with still, let's say, I guess. When he locks Tao in the basement, 
Yes. Like, at the end. That's that's a good scene. Yes, and it's real. And he basically says, like, I'm I'm happy to call you my friend. Like, and he just says that genuinely. He doesn't even insult him like he usually would. Like it's just a mm. genuine statement. It's like you don't you don't want killing a man on your soul. Yes. I know you want revenge, but you don't want revenge. Yeah. Great great moment. And yeah. I don't think it works <laughs> if he is not artificial throughout. Maybe maybe I like this movie yeah. a lot. Maybe I like this movie a great deal because like now the more I, I talk think... about it, I think that so much of it is clearly intentional and is genuinely it's well thought through even if I'm not sure all the decisions are the right ones. Clint Good director, good actor. We often forget this. But this is a movie that's very elegaic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's elegaic. Heavy shadows it's not everywhere. Elega- it's Heavy shadows slow. everywhere. It's, it's, it's unforgiven, but set in like the Detroit, uh, set in like a poor Detroit neighborhood. I, you could even contextualize, here, here's my big brain theory. You could contextualize the, his sacrifice as Clint the director um, atoning for Unforgiven, like the end of Unforgiven. But isn't the end of Un- isn't the end of Unforgiven already like we disagreed well, on this when we talked about that, it originally? That's right, we did because I think it's uh, it's it's the idea of like having your cake and eating it too, right? Yes, I I feel that it is too exciting to actually get across what it's attempting to do, and I think maybe at least in my like conceptualization, my, my metatextual conceptualization of this movie, maybe he realized that and thought that's not what I wanted to portray with this. So let's redo it and show that the actual heroic thing is your own death and to like prioritize the people you care about more than yourself. Also the family you make is probably is, you know, tighter, you know, the family you choose, right? Yes. Hey, is this, is this a queer uh, film? It's got as, oh boy. aspects of chosen we'll, family. We'll, I'm Juan over we'll here. Have Look to, at me. We'll, we'll have to get Juan on the one <laughs> to see if Gran Torino is a queer film. I don't think Gran Torino is a better film than To Kill a Mockingbird, but I do think it's a richer text, and I am perfectly willing to let it go on. Okay, because I was going to say, like, I do think it's definitely a better film than To Kill a Mockingbird, as evidenced by my talking here. I have more to say about it. I think we can... I'm actually really interested in revisiting it now that I know the contours of it a little better and now that I'm, I've re-familiarized myself with it. Because I think I saw it like when I was like a high schooler, but I haven't seen it since yeah, then. Yeah, I saw it in 2009 when it came out. Yeah, and like I forgot most of it, I'll be honest. Yeah. And I'm just – I'm fascinated by the fact that I ha- – when I first started watching it, I was like, this movie sucks. And then halfway through the movie, I was like, this is pretty good. And then I was like, yeah, I really liked that. And now as we're talking about it, like I have it as three and a half stars in Letterboxd. I could see this getting to a four, even a four and a half, maybe. Uh, you shouldn't be so quick to judge, Isabel. I shouldn't. Like I, this is one of those situations where talking about a movie and explaining what I didn't like and realizing what those things are actually doing has made me appreciate this film a great deal more. Maybe I actually am a Clint Eastwood auteurist, and I just never knew it. <laughs> uh, Clint's made a lot of bangers, and there's a lot of people who'd agree. Yeah. Um, uh, you should talk to our friend, uh, friend and your former colleague Ross Burks about it. Yes. Uh, or this, uh, I'll write for Cashier's Cinema. Cashier's Cinema. <laughs> um, so, I think that's pretty clear. Gran Torino's moving forward. Gran Torino's moving forward. Now, 65 minutes in the episode, we can get to the second matchup. To be fair, half of that was me coughing, so. The other half was you talking about some Q shit. And the fact that my house is haunted, let's not forget. Also, the fact that, okay, well. Alright, so, speaking of haunted houses, ooh. <laughs> Ooh, spooky. Haunted in a matter of speaking. 
Haunted by Oedipal uh, impulses and murder of women. Ha- sexism. Ha- haunted by questionable depictions of mental illness. Ooh. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so our next matchup features the, features the following. Here's our tale of the tape. Uh, the 34 seed, the 34th best film of all time, Psycho. Uh, released in 1960, directed by one Alfred Hitchcock. Starring Anthony director. Perkins, very up-and-coming director, uh, starring uh, based on the book Psycho by Robert Robert Block. I did not know that it was based on a book. Yeah. Um, starring Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, John Gavin, Martin Balsam, John McIntyre, and Janet Leigh. Uh, cost about $800,000 to make, $50 million ticket at the box office. And um, I don't know if this was an Oscar player. I don't think it was. I feel like it's too vulgar to... Too 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 genre, especially in the sixties. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm uh, maybe uh, I, sh- I should have really fucking. We should prepare for these accolades. Things. Oh no! It, it oh, was it yeah. was nominated best for four, four Oscars. Uh, oh, uh, best director. Best director. Hitch never won one, right? Uh, it's, I don't know. Uh, best art direction, best cinematography, both black and white. Uh, went over four though, so it was an Oscar player, a minor one, and uh, you know, uh, people consider these, consider this to be one of the great horror films of the sixties. Uh, versus, uh, what's the seed on this? 223, the 223rd best film of all time. Uh, La La Land. Ah, La La Land. Released in 2016, uh, written and directed by Damien Chazelle. Uh, I didn't, oh fuck, I didn't say who wrote Psycho. You can look it up. Who cares? Uh, it's a fucking Hitchcock movie. Uh, uh, directed by Damien Chazelle, written by Damien Chazelle, starring Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, John Legend, and Rosemary DeWitt. $30 $30 million budget, $447.4 million at uh, the box office. And uh, this one was a bona fide Oscar player. Famously was misannounced as the Best Picture winner. It got six awards from 14 nominations. Best Director, Best Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Original Score, Best Original Song, and Best Production Design. I agree with one of those. Oh, well, we'll get into it. Um... Yeah, I, guess I will, will say that uh, La La Land is no longer on the top 250. No shit. Yeah. As of, you look it up? As of the time of recording, on December 1st, 2020, two days before I turn right. 30. Happy birthday. Thanks, I'm dreading. Welcome, welcome, welcome to your third. <laughs> I'm it's, so old. It's the same my, as... My bones are going to turn to dust on midnight. Take it from someone who's been in their 30s for coming on three years. Your 30s are basically the same as, uh, the same as your 20s, except you're less stupid. Hey, that's, that sounds not bad. I'll be honest, <laughs> right? Um, okay, so let's talk about let's talk about Psycho before we before we <laughs> before we uh, elbow drop La La Land from the top rope. Both hey, maybe I love La La Land. We don't know. I mean, I I know your position on La La Land. Maybe I've not changed it. Maybe anything. it's a Gran Torino situation. Oh, maybe. But uh, let's talk about Psycho. Sure. Now you posited in our chat that Psycho might be the weak link in the Hitchcock God Run. That stretches from the 50s into the 60s. Yes. Uh, and I'm pretty confident saying that, if we're being honest. I have I have no qualms about that. I also think it's... If we're not counting the like silent films that no one counts as part of his like good filmography... It starts with the 39 steps, right? Yes. Um, that's where it starts. Well, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. If we're not counting those, I'd say this is the worst Hitchcock film I've seen. I still like it. I, I still think it's good. But... Hot damn is everything else he's made that I've seen better. Uh, like, so here's so here's the run, and like, let's say okay, 
It starts starts with with strangers. Would you say? Yeah. So here's the run: 1951 to 1964, 13 years. Here's the run. Strangers on a train, I confess, dial in for murder, rear window to catch a thief, the trouble with Harry, man who knew too much, wrong man, vertigo, north by northwest, psycho, the birds, Marnie. Yeah. those. That's really good. Good ass films. If, if you don't mind me saying this, uh, I think that Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> is a pretty good director. Like just ripping vertigo, north by northwest, psycho, the birds, I would contend is one of the best four film runs of all time. Like, across eras, genres, and directors, those four back to back to back to back. I think there's a lot of people that would agree with you. I'm not sure I'd be one of them, but I will say that they are all good to incredible films. There's this thing, like, uh, I, I forget who, this sounds like some Chuck Klosterman shit, but oh God. it could have been some, it could have been like Stephen Hyden, a music critic. Like, uh, for the, I think it was Stephen Hyden, who is, uh, who is uh, better than Chuck Klosterman. Um I like the notion. I like this idea of the five album test, not as a gauge of quality, but as a uh, of like whether a band is better than another band or whatever. But I do like the idea of like sustained quality or sustained excellence, whatever. And I like this idea for directors as well. Like, if you're a director, can you run five movies consecutively that are like, like at least like, like some would say, chain five masterpieces, which I don't think anyone has done, but like chain five movies that are like really good together. And I think that run is where Hitch gets closest because then on one end you have the wrong man and on the other end you have Marnie and I haven't seen the wrong man and Marnie's okay. There's a lot of people going bad for it. Yeah. There's a lot of people love Marnie, but so some would say that, uh, I think, I think everyone has like their weird Hitchcock that they go to bat for. For me, it's rope. I like fucking adore rope. So, but there, there's also a first, uh, this is the thing with Hitchcock. There's this first prime like 20 years earlier. Because here's the other run. Because you've got Shadow of a Doubt, Lifeboat, Fighting Generation, Spellbound, Notorious, Paradine Case, Rope. Some good ass Which flicks. is not nothing. And this doesn't include Rebecca or Lady Vanishes or Foreign Correspondent. Or 39 Steps, Alfred which Hitch- I like quite a bit. Or 39 Alfred Hitchcock has made a lot of fucking good movies. And Psycho is one of them. And some of them, like 39 Steps, also have terrible endings that come out of nowhere. But hey. Ah... Uh, I was in. Do you remember the end of the Thirty Nine Steps? I haven't seen the Thirty Nine. Okay, steps. Uh, this is. I don't spoil it for me. It's okay. Fine. If you've seen okay. the if you've seen the Thirty Nine Steps, because well, here's the thing: like it wouldn't be spoiling it because it comes out of nowhere and it is the dumbest fucking shit. Like it is mind-bogglingly dumb. If you've seen it, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, if you know, you know. Yes, and I also think the ending of Psycho is pretty fucking dumb. Watching Psycho. It's like watching Usain Bolt run the 100-meter dash. And it's a, feat, uh, it's a feat of athleticism that few can hope to achieve in a lifetime. But 85 meters in, he eats shit because he trips on his shoelaces. <laughs> tumbles into first, still wins, tumbles into first place. But damn, that's not the way you want to do it. I first saw this movie when I was like 17 and even then, as an idiot, I was like, I feel like we don't need the part with the psych evaluation because that's what the rest of the movie's about. Yeah, like, like I'm cool with keeping like the last shot because it's wonderful and it's last shot. It great. really displays how fucking good Perkins is in this. Anthony Perkins is a beast in this movie. He's yeah, really it, good. incredible. That's the one thing that like 
I have lukewarm things to say about a lot of this film, but that's the one thing I can't I can't argue with. I think Anthony Perkins is fucking incredible. I think because Psycho has kind of penetrated the culture a lot. Nothing about it is really like surprising anymore. We know the beats. I will we say, how, we, like, interesting thing. I was shocked because, um, so I watched this with Julie, uh, my, my, my girlfriend, Julie, uh, mm-hmm. uh, just to explain to people who are just listening to this fucking podcast and don't know me Is personally. Is she a listener? Um, no, she's not. Mm, okay. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, maybe she should be. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to sell her on it. I'll say that she's mentioned in this okay. episode. <laughs> and, uh, we were watching it together and when, I was going to say Marnie Stern. That's not her name. When's, what's the name? Who, the, the guitar act- player? The, the guitarist, Marnie Stern? No, I, I, that's, that's, that's the name that came to my head, but it's not the right one. Who's the actress that dies? Uh, 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 Janet Lee. Janet Lee. thank you. Um, don't ask me how this got mixed up in my head. Um, when Janet Lee gets murdered, Julie was like, oh, so like the mom's like a murderer? And I was like, did, did you not see Psycho before? <laughs> and she was like, no, like I don't, I've never seen oh, this movie. And I was so like, good. oh my God. Just perfect usage, perfect viewing case. Yes, uh, it was, it was honestly very fun because I just assumed everyone like that had permeated the cultural consciousness that Anthony Perkins was his mother. That was his mother, yeah. But apparently, uh, spoilers, no. I guess it's uh, spoilers for a, spoilers, <laughs> I guess for a sixty-year-old. Yeah, you can no longer have the experience that that Julie had watching this film. Uh, yeah, oh, I, I generally found that like incredible, and it was it was a great way to watch it. That's really rad. It'd be like, like imagine you were watching Star Wars and someone didn't know, like that Darth Vader was Luke's father, was Luke's dad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they'd be that, like, oh shit, like, fuck. That's. I mean, it's that. I mean, if you're like seven and you're not and you're seeing Star Wars for the first time, of course you don't know because you're a fucking idiot unless you're like into that kind of stuff. But like, no, it's like that thing. You're like a kid and it's like, oh, I am your father. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> well, because you know. That's like the perfect way to see it, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I interrupted you when you were saying that Psycho is so permeated the cultural consciousness. Yeah, it's so permeated. Like, I, like, I, like, I know the twists, the turns. I know, like, I haven't seen, I hadn't seen this movie in over 10 years, but I could still map it out. Like, I still knew all the beats. So, at this point in time, at this point in my life, I enjoy Psycho as I do a lot of Hitchcock films and a lot of these sort of, sort of smaller scale thrillers from the era as just this crack piece of filmmaking i i think it's one of the more one of the more showy hitchcock films and it looks it looks really fucking good and i still really like just the first act crash it's like it's like you're setting up one entire story and then you just immediately pivot a third of the way through and it's like ah different story we're following a different thread and i love that move i think more movies should do that move and it's a movie that it's even if I've seen this like this movie is culturally penetrated so much I've already seen it before but it's still it's still like an exciting piece of filmmaking. Yeah, I I, I agree, Derek. I think this is a good film. <laughs> um, I don't love it. I will say I didn't think, like I said, like I think this is the least good of the Hitchcock films I've seen. I think there are part of that might be the way that it's permeated the cultural consciousness. So it just doesn't have the same kind of oomph that it did once because everything is almost cliche now. Uh, but I w- Well, everything is cliche, 100%. Yeah, but... And it's also very funny that... It was very funny watching it that everyone in this film is terrible at not being suspicious. 
Everyone in this film right. is the most suspicious human being and is impossible. That's like, right. It's impossible it's like, for them to hide it. 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 It's like fucking Clue. Everyone looks guilty. Yeah. Oh, I would have rather watched Clue. Clue should be on the top 250. It's a great film. But I think I think Clue is still kind of like a, a cult thing. I, I think I think I think we're coming around on Clue. I think Clue is slowly becoming a recognized great work of art. And well, I mean, I, yeah, I think a lot of people agree, and certainly like the popularity of something like Knives Out would attest to that too. Uh, I will say for Psycho, the couple things that I will mention real quick that I did like quite a bit because I don't just want to shit on it. Sure. Like I, uh, we have plenty of things to shit on in the next film, but. <sighs> Yeah, the things I will say like that I really liked about Psycho. I forgot how long it shows him cleaning up that hotel room. After no one talks for like half an hour. Yeah, it, it's great. It takes like forever, which is it's wonderful because a it it lets that sink in. It gives you time to really readjust to the fact that oh, this is not a movie about Janet Lee. This is a movie about Anthony Perkins. Cool, and it's great because it works. It's it works. It's a scene that works like. The way as intended, and this is just good screenwriting, this is just good movie making. It plays one way whenever you watch it, and plays a different way whenever you know the punch at the end. You think he's just covering for his mom, but then he ultimately is just covering for himself. He's performing for no one. <laughs> Even at 109 minutes, I will say that it has moments it sags a little of, bit towards the end? Eh, a little bit, but I, I was going to say more that it's patient. It's very patient. In a way that I really appreciated watching it in that it doesn't feel like it needs to barrel forward and get to the next piece of the film it lets itself take time like the whole thing with janet lee stopping at the used car shop Mm -hmm. doesn't need to be in the film let's be honest it doesn't need to be in the film at all uh it serves no actual plot purpose but everything with the cop yes everything with the cop i guess but it also sets up this this feeling of tension uh a classic Hitchcock thing, obviously. Mm-hmm. This feeling of tension and this feeling of oppressive atmosphere of trying to run and not being able to get anywhere. It sets up so much better when she's killed halfway through the film. And all of a sudden we're left rudderless and we're like, oh, oh, what about all this stuff that happened before? That doesn't matter anymore? Like, Well, it's not that it doesn't matter. It's basically Hitchcock laying track. It's yes. like, this is the thread that the investigators are going to pull to eventually get there. Yes, definitely. But... She's trying to like hide her track, and, and I also like I, Bernard. In a way, it reminds me a lot of the film The Descent. Oddly enough, because The Descent, when The Descent, the Neil Marshall film, yes, which is a great film uh, that fails in its second half, unfortunately. But uh, the thing that everyone praises about The Descent that I think is genuinely true is that its characters are people who have motivations and who have inner lives. So then, when they become imperiled, it is much more impactful and. Mm-hmm. I think that is what a lot of these times that with Janet Lee does is it it makes her into a person who has motivations, who has ideas and who has goals in life and who is trying to get to something. So then when she just dies kill. out of nowhere, all of a sudden that it's far more destabilizing than it would be otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Also, it should be noted that the Bernard Herrmann score just knocks. Yes. Wonderful. It's a classic for a reason. So La La Land? Sure. Question mark? Um, um so this is your favorite film. <laughs> sure. It's your favorite sure musical. You love all the you own the soundtrack on vinyl. That's right. Uh I I have I own a turntable that uh, folds up into a nice little suitcase. <laughs> and no and I have no amplifier, no speakers. It just plays from the box. I didn't like I mean there 
I like parts of this movie, but the parts that I don't like kind of sink in. <laughs> well, you're you're a Damien Gazella tourist, though, so. I love Whiplash. I think Whiplash kicks ass. I like that movie. This is not as good as that. Shocking when my, statement. In my... In my in my first in my review in my first review of La La Land on Letterboxd, I said it's really fucked up that the guy who made Whiplash made this movie because Whiplash is a movie is about how single minded focus on one aspect of your life to the detriment of all others is bad. And this is about how it's good, but, actually. This is about how it ultimately well, it's good for most of it, and then there's like the one good part of the movie unequivocally, which is the last twenty minutes where Basically, Chazelle is stealing, like, a lot of plays from the Michelle Gondry playbook. Interesting that you think that's the good part of the movie. I, I've, that's the good part of the movie. I'm not sure I necessarily disagree, but at the same time, uh, that is not the opinion I've heard other people hold, let's say. Uh, other people. Um, <laughs> this, so, there's a lot, like, I, this movie is exceedingly, it's very, it's very pretty. It looks it looks real nice. Chazelle is trying real hard to sort of emulate the sort of bold, vivid colors of those classic musicals that he loves. Question mark because this movie kind of stops being a musical three songs in. Yeah, and so this is one of the many frustrations I had with this film is that and here's the thing: the songs blow. <laughs> I don't agree there. I think the songs are fine. I think I think some of the songs are, are totally fine, but they're so immemorable. Like, except for City of Stars, I don't remember a fucking thing about any of the songs. Okay, but, like, so are... Okay, never mind. I was gonna say, so are most musical songs, but, like, I could literally do all of, like... We, we got trouble right here in River City. I could do that whole song right now. It's fucking owns. <laughs> Music Man is a great movie. We should have watched that instead. But... Streets of Fire is a musical, right? <laughs> what? Streets of Fire is a musical, right? I don't know what that I is. I can dream about you. I feel like you're making a joke that I'm not smart enough to get. No, do you not know about Streets of Fire, the Walter Hill film? You're the Walter Hill geek here. Okay, Isabel, get out your watch list. Add Streets of Fire to it. It is a. I'm just going to uh, add bullets to the head Walter... to it instead, just to spite you. Well, you can. Well, add both. It's it's a um, it's like a neon drenched retro musical. Like it's almost like a retro retro futurist new wave musical from the '80s that stars M- Michelle Pere. And Di- uh, is it Diane Lane who's in that? Yep, Diane Lane. And Rick Moranis. Well, um, okay. Y- you yeah. sold me at, Mc- at Rick Moranis. Now I'm mad in this too. It's, it's, it's quite good. Um, in, that, in that Walter Hill way. <laughs> but so it wasn't so much the music that bothered me. Although actually part of it did. But it was more a conceptual version of the music. A uh, conceptual question we will answer in a moment. So this movie is attempting to go for big, bold colors and big, bold emotions. And to really like be extra to be in your face and all that kind of business and and it succeeds sometimes i would say it succeeds basically never <laughs> like this movie was, okay. was was dull as dishwater to me i couldn't it's it's a very very the greatest sin of this movie that is dull as dog shit. i had so much it is like a difficult time paying attention which shouldn't be happening in your exciting musical where people where you literally like must have cordoned off part of the los angeles freeway to get this opening song Sure, look that. Yeah, way. and hum me a bar of that song, won't you, Isabel? Uh, there's well, there, I, I can describe part of it where the the there's a guy playing timpanis visually, but there's no timpanis on the soundtrack, and it fucking frustrated me. Oh, you mean the the jazz band in the back of the moving truck there? Yes, the quote unquote okay, jazz good. band. Okay. Yes, sure. 
this yeah, this movie's just so dull. There's like nothing to it, and people who react to this movie positively, and there's quite a few, even people who I respect and believe, are not lying to me. Um, I don't see why they would. Yes, but uh, like like Juan, for example, loves this film. Four and a half stars, then five stars on a rewatch. So they're a big fan of it. Um, plenty of other people. It goes down really easy. I'll say that. Well, uh, it's dull, but it goes down easy. Well, what I'll say is that like that that dullness that we're feeling. I think, I, I think this movie is all about whether you get on board with the emotional throughline of it early on. If you don't, it's not going to work for you. Which is, I think, the point that I was at is like this emotional throughline doesn't work for me. And also, I love Ryan Gosling. He shouldn't Ryan be Gosling the lead in this movie. <laughs> I think people keep wanting to cast him as a romantic lead, which fine, the Notebook, whatever. But also, the nice guys exist, and that's what I that Ryan Gosling has this facility. For comic roles, like straight comic roles, yeah. and the big, the big short, he's genuinely hilarious in the big short, which is a movie I have not seen. It's that that's a hello Middlebrown movie that I have a lot of love for. That's a movie that's okay. <laughs> and Emma Stone, we've talked we've talked about Emma Stone before. She is so charismatic. She is so charming. She's wonderful. She tries so hard to give a third dimension to this character. And I think she succeeds more than more than Gosling does, but uh, I I don't know if it's a fault of of uh, of the roles that she takes or just because her facility with comic roles and the way we kind of devalue comic roles, especially comic roles as performed by women. Yeah. But when I, I I don't know if I've seen the movie where we've gotten like the Emma Stone performance. She's got an Oscar on her on her on her mantelpiece now, but I'm still waiting to get like my balls kicked in by an Emma Stone performance. Yeah, like, I like her in everything, but that nothing reaches that next level. I haven't seen like Easy A. Maybe that's the she. One. She. I will you say know? she's great in Easy A. It's not a good movie. That's the problem with like a lot of her roles. Is like she's great in Easy A. It's not a very good movie. I think she's pretty good in The Help. It's not a good movie. She's really good in Zombieland. That's an okay movie. Like she's actually super bad. Super bad. That's an okay movie. I think that's a good movie, but I think she's the best performance. In it. Uh, the House Bunny. I think she's great in her couple scenes in The House Bunny, and that is a better movie than you would expect for a movie called The House Bunny. Still not a great movie. Uh, the cru- that's the Croods. Uh, an Anna Faris yes. film, right? Uh, the, the Croods, which okay. is also a far better movie than you probably think it is. Croods is actually pretty fucking good. Um, she's great in that. So is Nick Cage. Um, Gangster Squad. I think she's great in that. That movie fucking sucks. Uh, Gosling's in that. Gosling's too, right? in that, that was, too. Yeah. That was the. That's a Ruben Fleischer joint, right? That's his. Uh, that's his Zombieland cash in, right? Yeah. With all the clout you get for making Zombieland, you get to make Gangster Squad. Gangster Squad. Uh, the movie, the movie the everyone was asking for. I mean, listen, I was like, Zombieland is what, 2005? Um, 2009. Oh, boy. Uh, 2009. So I was old enough to know better for that way. Yeah, I, I mean, Ruben Ru- Fleischer gets a pass in my book because he made Venom, which is a great film. Right. Oh, he did, did yeah. he? Oh, my God. Holy shit. Venom owns. Talk about- we should talk about Venom instead. Venom is kind of one of my like favorite superhero movies. I love it. Ruben Fleischer has had an interesting studio hack career. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I think it's worth exploring because he did that like sort of weird, he did that movie with like three titles that Richard Ayoade is in. 
I think it's uh, Neighborhood Watch. 30 minutes, 30 minutes or less. less, which is actually okay. 30 minutes or less actually is really good and way darker than you would think it would be. And it's basically the story of like, it's based on a real story that uh, Net- Netflix did like a mini series on uh, that is not as good. But 30 minutes or less is genuinely a real good movie. So maybe we should try to rescue uh, Ruben Fleischer from the. Uh from the uh from from the uh from the bargain bin of history as it were but maybe we push that to a later date and continue talking about la la sure now i'm holding back on saying my main criticism go go ahead because i want to see where this goes okay so when we talked about whiplash we talked about how it knew nothing about jazz music i think that oh does this continue to not know anything about jazz except it's worse like this is this is abysmal in its treatment of jazz music I actually thought it was fucking hysterical when uh, Ryan Gosling is giving Emma Stone this like big speech about why jazz is amazing and like why jazz is important. And he's like, oh, like it's like it's like a battle and there's there's combat on the stage. And he's doing this while the most boring like stayed jazz band plays in the room, like jazz band that you would only go listen to if you were like fucking 40 or 50 years old, uh, probably older than that, honestly. And you wanted something nice to have while you drink a martini. Yeah, it's like one, one like like I'm I'm a jazz dunce, but this seems like pretty pretty bog standard jazz, like that you would ex- like the kind of jazz that you would expect. You know, jazz. It, it's like it's, it's Starbucks drums, jazz, piano, Starbucks. It, it's jazz that okay. hasn't evolved basically since like 1935. Like this, this right. is this is jazz that like has pre cool jazz jazz. Yeah, so this is like a like this idea of jazz does not include like cool jazz or modal jazz or free jazz or like free improv or even like modern forms of jazz. Like if you listen to people who are doing jazz now, it is so innovative and so unique. And there's a lot of aspects of like hip hop pulled in and R and B pulled in, and it is moving forward. There's still like jazz is still alive. There's so much interesting things going on with it, and. It's a- it's a vibrant idiom, you would say. Yes. Whereas this movie, uh, the the character who represents that is John Legend. And the ever charismatic, ever talented. Chrissy Teigen's husband, John Legend. Chrissy Teigen's husband, John Legend. As we all know from Chrissy's court on, on QB. <laughs> you maybe. <laughs> he... Is, Who's good in his like five scenes. In yeah, he, he's, he's, a, he's a good actor. I'd love to see him in more stuff. And here's the funny thing, is that throughout this whole movie, we get this very staid, boring kind of jazz music that Ryan Gosling likes to play. I think it's very telling that all the pictures he puts up in his club later, like the most recent one is the only picture of John Coltrane you have seen if you've never heard of John Coltrane. Uh, Like everything else is before that. So it's this very staid jazz music for the entire film. And then all of a sudden, we are seeing uh, Sebastian, who is Ryan Gosling's character. He begrudgingly goes to play on a session with John Legend's character and he's playing piano on it. And all of a sudden John Legend like hits a, hits an MPC button and there's like, there's like hip hop beats playing. Like what's going on here? And like the fuck up thing. I don't think it's great. It's the best music in the movie. (laughs) Like it's the most interesting jazz music in the movie where it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's the most memorable thing in the movie. Yeah. And cause it has like a personality and there's like, Oh, there's like vibrance here. There's energy. And even like later on when they're playing that sold out concert, <laughs> they're called the messengers. Get it? Oh God. Are they? I didn't, I, yeah. I, I didn't even pay attention to that much apparently, <laughs> but like, yeah, like that's the most interesting music in the film. Cause like, Oh, I can see how they're weaving in different genres here and all this kind of stuff. And then 
that's supposed to be the thing you dislike. And Ryan yeah, Gosling yes, Ryan Gosling is supposed to be this great person because he doesn't want jazz to move forward. He's essentially a reactionary. This is a very reactionary film in a lot of ways that I found very off-putting and strange. <gasps> that I don't I that don't think it me. it obviously consciously doesn't know that. But it is. Right. It's a reactionary film that also Here's a, here's a fun side note. It's uh, now that I'm like thinking of this, it's also a film that says, "Hey, the thing that will kill a relationship is if the woman is successful." Like, oh, <laughs> like 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 really? Like like that is what the film is saying. I don't think it's trying to be regressive, but it it is regressive. It's a very regressive film. But but yes, this is like just a movie that's very much set like like stuck in the past and doesn't seem to understand that it's stuck in the past or I think there's, there's a way to do this kind of old style of not just musical but film and a, all the dudes wear suits all the women wear dresses yes and um the one that i would point to as a much better version of this um do you know what i'm gonna say it was suggested to me by uh one juan barkeen okay let me guess because I think I've seen this movie compared to this movie elsewhere. Okay. Frank Coppola's one from the heart. No, actually. Although um, I do want to see that film. I've heard it's, it's. I've heard nothing but great things. I think this. I think that's the tenor this was going for. Even though I haven't seen it either. But from what I understand, what's the comparison? What's the comp? Down with Love, which is not a musical a, technically. A film there that is, I have not seen. There's there's music in it, and it is essentially it's a recreation of like. Uh, the Doris Day, Rock Hudson kind of romantic comedy. Exactly. Right? And it's the same kind of over-the-top production design and set design. And it's the same kind of, oh, in-your-face in version of these tropes. And really just putting it out there. But that movie, the really fascinating thing about it is even though it's set in the past like that, um, it is not a reactionary film. It is a very like forward-thinking, like progressive film. It's really fun and enjoyable, and it just pops off the screen. And then La La Land just feels like it fucking drags the entire time. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I used the term borrowed nostalgia. because For I'm the unremembered original. 80s. That's right. I'm not original enough to think of my own shit, so I gotta <laughs> rip off James Murphy. For the, It's for the unremembered 50s in this case. Do we have more things to say about La La Land? I feel like there's a lot of like things that are getting cut and moved around in there, but we've also been recording for I an think... hour and 43 minutes. So. And whose fault is that? Well, it's both our faults. Yeah, it's whatever. both our faults. Um... I still think the last kind of run is the last run is good. Um, I it's so the screenplay is so bad. It's like it's like the the whole argument at the dinner table, like the net, like like the emotional crux of the film, the emotion, like the emotional linchpin of the film, sounds like the it sounds like an art relationship post on Reddit. It's the dumbest shit in the history of the world. No two humans talk like this. It's like it's it's as if we were trying to have a conversation and we were just deliberately trying to misunderstand each other and deliberately trying to take it in bad faith yes which to be fair both these characters seem like terrible people so i mean right like ryan gosling represents like a kind of dude this dude's thing is jazz but it could be any any number of things and emma stone represents the kind of person who gets bamboozled by that and then grows to regret it yes i don't think i i, I don't think Emma Stone's character is like an asshole in this. No, her, like, at least her, not like as much her, as her, like his is. Her 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 greatest flaw is that she has ambition, which we know that well women don't have. 
God. I need to bracket that and say that that was a joke because no one said it. Um, you know what's the only thing dumber than this movie? I mean, uh, the, uh, what? Is when people review movies that haven't come out yet. I've, I'm I'm on this because uh-huh. I was looking at Ruben Fleischer's filmography. And he's set to direct the <laughs> Uncharted film starring Tom Holland. And, Tom Holland. Uh, oui, oui. There have already been 152 reviews of it. Even though uh, you, know how, you know you know how nerds are, it literally hasn't come out yet, and it's all people being like, "Oh, like this movie's gonna be great, or this movie's gonna be terrible." Like, what's what do you gain from doing this? Like, like in your life, what is made better points. by acting this way? I don't know. I mean, like, you don't, you don't even get clout because the most popular review here is four likes. <laughs> what's the review? Um, the way this movie is about the first game, but includes Chloe Fraser as a character and a young Sully makes no sense to me. I hate this movie. Uh, I hate it so much. Nerd! I hate you, Tom. Hold on. Shut the fuck up. Here's the thing. The plots of all the Uncharted games are shit, so it doesn't fucking matter. God, I I hate that they're making an Uncharted movie so much. I'm going to go off I on mean, this for a second. Ha- I apologize. but We already um, have four Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, exactly. Like, un- the Uncharted games are only enjoyable because you're playing them. <laughs> Like, they're not good, and it's this it's this bullshit that AAA video games get away with having, with being terrible just because they are better than what's around them, and I think it's fucking pathetic. Like, when people act like fucking Uncharted has a good story, it doesn't. It just has a story, and that's all you're looking for. Or when people are like, oh, like, if... If The Last of Us was a movie, it would be like an Academy Award winner. It's like, no, it wouldn't be. No, it wouldn't. It's a sh- it would be like Prisoners. Yeah, it's 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 which is fine for its own thing, Lo- but let's long not- and lugubrious and liked by only the most despicable of our society's rejects. <laughs> Even I don't like The Last of Us, <laughs> but um, no, it's 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 this trend that has happened so often in mainstream games fans. Uh, I think this is becoming less and less of a thing, thank God, as long as that trend keeps up, where games with mediocre writing in any other medium are are praised as if they are the second coming. And I think even someone who I like quite a bit, Griffin McElroy, was 100% guilty of this when he talks about the Walking Dead visual novel games, because mm-hmm. the story in those is bad. Like, it's just not a good story. And the writing in it is awful. And the acting in it, but it is, is mediocre. But it is but it, yes, but it is a story, and it is slightly more complicated than "Hey, go to the next castle and get the princess," and that's the low bar you need to clear, apparently, to be a great writer in video games. It's how you get to be fucking David Cage somehow. So let's. Let, I mean, I, I am interested in this. Like, okay, so we're going to bracket off. We're just going to say that Psycho moves on. Hmm. Uh, sure. Okay. And I'm going to I'm going to yes and this bit about video games. Okay. Because <laughs> um I I think like every okay, so TV is trying to be movies, video games are trying to be movies, everything wants to be cinematic. What are like if you were to ask me, hey Derek, what are your favorite games of like all time? What are your favorite what 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 are the games that you keep going back to? Oh, this is this is a fun thing. This I, I I'm excited about this conversation. We're trying to keep it. We're going to try to keep this episode under two hours. We're talking about narrative. This is in our purview, right? Yes. I, I continue. I have things to say. Okay. So, my favorite games of all time are like, uh, like Tetris, uh, Portal, uh, Animal Crossing: New Leaf, NHL '94, um, like 
none of this has a fucking story. And okay, like, here, it I, does though. I mean, I guess, I guess, yes. I mean, at NHL '94, you had the narrative of the season. Sports are narrative. We know this. We all love John Boyce here. Animal Crossing Narr- has like, a sp- nar- as ludo narrative as the term has ludo. become. As pretentious as that has, like that word has put me off because so many people use it just to say dumb shit. But it's a useful term because the act of playing is the creation of a story, especially not necessarily in Tetris, maybe, although I'm sure you could still abstractly consider that a story. Uh, like there is an arc. There is an arc. You are build, You are keeping, you are both simultaneously building and tearing down a structure. But, but, but there's not like a, hey, here's the story and dialogue we set for you. Go through this, right. is what you're saying. And this... And speaking of uh, ludo uh, narrativity or whatever the hell the term is, my what is probably going to be my uh, my game of the year 2020, baseball, is a perfect <laughs> example of this. It is just pure. It is just pure emergent story- uh, storytelling. It's like the game itself is like uh, watch a text box randomly generate baseball results, but the story is everywhere else. I used to be far more hardline in this in that I used to take the stance that any game, like a game should never attempt to like games shouldn't have cutscenes. Essentially games should tell things through their gameplay. Like there shouldn't be moments where you are completely removed from the authorship of the story. I am less harsh on that now, uh, but I still think that there was a trend and this trend still weirdly continues in a lot of AAA games, not at all in like the indie spaces, but a lot of like the bigger name spaces. This is still a trend, uh, especially a trend in prestige games, quote unquote, mm-hmm. which is we are going to make a movie that you can play parts of. And that's what a good story is. And that is so reductive and so uninterested in the potential of games as a medium. And... So much of it purposefully askews the things in games that can actually create really unique and interesting stories and instead presents you with the things that don't. Like you're just watching essentially a CGI movie for parts of it. And I think there are good ways to use um, cutscenes. Like I'm a fucking sucker for Bloodborne. Uh, And Bloodborne has occasionally uh, cutscenes here and there. None of them are terribly long. But they are to depict something that the gameplay couldn't really depict without adding a bunch of other systems on top of it. Fair. But... Would the FMV shit in her story count as cutscenes? Um, I, I like her story quite a bit. But again, the game isn't so much... Like, like, if you strung that together as a movie, it's not that great. It's kind of corny and cheesy. But the fact that you are having to research and trying to like put this Pretty mystery together... And I think it's actually a brilliant script... In the way that it, in terms of gameplay, because it it leads you without telling you what to do, uh, like like the 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 like stereotypical I'm going to write a first year games criticism essay is like here's how the first level of Mario teaches you how to play Mario, but that's true. And when games do that really well, like something like Her Story, I think that's incredibly cool. But Her Story itself is not a great story. Sure. I have some answers for this, but can you think of any games where you would consider the writing and the story to be strong enough that you could pull it away from the game and it still be very, very good? Offhand? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Um, I'm not... I don't play a Because I have a couple, for what it's worth. Like the, like, the one... 
that I could like the one that I think if this were a movie, if 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 I weren't playing this, I'd probably want to watch this. Is probably Portal Two. Interesting. I think that movie okay. is. I think. I think that. I think that game is pretty funny. I think it's got kind of a robust narrative structure to it. I'd watch kind of like a dark sci-fi comedy about someone trying to bust loose from the abandoned <laughs> factory, basically. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, like, like my example was uh, Soma for one of them, which is a horror game where you essentially just walk around and hide from monsters. But the story of it is genuinely like really. Really, really fucking good. I don't want to give any spoilers for it. If you haven't played played Soma, it's by the same people who made Amnesia: The Dark Descent. But in case that scares you off, because I know that those games are super unapproachable and kind of off-putting, uh, if you're not really into the Heidi horror kind of game, there is a version of Soma where the monsters can't kill you, so you don't actually have to worry about them. So I, which I highly recommend. I think it's great that they did that. Uh, like that's an interesting design choice. It, it's it's so cool. Like I genuinely love that kind of accessibility thing. Where I like a lot of horror games, but I don't like horror games where I'm being pursued too much. Just because uh, for me, horror needs to have like an ebb and flow, like a tension and a release. And in those kind of games, you never feel the release. It always feels tense, so it stops being fun after a while. But Having that mode in there is essentially what got me through the rest of that game. Highly recommend it. And the story is wonderful in it. There are other games like Eliza, uh, which is a really interesting game that I highly recommend to people. Um, Hardcoded, actually, uh, which is a game I think I've talked about before, maybe in the chat or whatever. But it's... I think you're right. I think you mentioned this before. Yeah, it, it's, a, one, it's these, a... one of these cyberpunk deals? Yeah, it's, it's a cyberpunk game um, about basically just a whole bunch of trans girls and a whole bunch of robots who are also trans girls who fuck. And the writing in it is genuinely really funny, and the relationship. I can't possibly see what you would. <laughs> I can't see what you would enjoy about that about that game. It's great, I can't. great game. I I, I support <laughs> them on Patreon. On Patreon, I am Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> um, so like those kind of games, but I think that the fact that those are relatively few and far between. Oh, or the Swapper. The Swapper, I think, is actually a fucking brilliant game, and the more that I think about it, is one of my favorite games of all time because the gameplay so perfectly integrates with the story. I think the fact that those are relatively few and far between, and when I asked you, you didn't really have an easy answer to pull up. I think because what makes a game a game is interaction. Me, it, yeah, it's it's like it's more baked into the gameplay. It's baked with how you interact with the with the game itself. It's not really, it's not really about oh let's let's like the 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 script the like. The, Often the script doesn't serve the game, and what 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 is the point then? Yeah, yeah, no, I I would agree, and I think that I don't want to be hardline on it, like I said, because I think that that was a position a lot of game critics took around like 2012, 2013 that has slowly become like less and less applicable, like any hardline position is. So I don't want to say, oh, story should only be delivered through gameplay, and you shouldn't have text boxes and and like text dumps, and you shouldn't have like you know uh, these things where you take away all control, but. I will say when I think of like in the past couple years, what are the best stories in games I've played? It's like Dark Souls or like Bloodborne, like the Soulsborne games from FromSoft. And those games, if you only look at the like dialogue and cutscenes, are in fucking comprehensible. <laughs> like uh, I know plenty of people who just play them through like that and don't pay attention to any of the other stuff. And by the end, they're like, I have no fucking clue what happened, but I had fun. Which is totally cool. It's totally a valid way to play it. But the the couple genius things that they do, and 
I apologize for everyone who is tired of hearing about how great the Souls games are, but I'm going to do that again. Uh, one of the, the two genius I'm going to give you three minutes because we're about to cross the two hours. Totally fair. I, I wanted to end this soon anyways. This is going to be my last thing. So the two things they do that I think are genius. Number one is having a bunch of plot hidden in item descriptions, which actively takes effort to find, is non-diegetic, but you still have to go out and find it. Um, and you still have to put it together in your brain and like sort things through in your head. It doesn't just give it to you. And the second thing it does is tell stories through mechanics. Like the entire idea of being hollowed or being in like soul form or fighting as a hunter in Bloodborne. The act of doing those things is where the story is created. And they're able to get a lot of content out of that. Like I point to the end of Demon Souls. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but essentially the the last fight in Demon Souls is piss easy and essentially impossible to lose on purpose, and that is because it is expressing something very specific. Or like uh, the my favorite boss in any Souls game, um, and I'm not going to go super deep into this because again, you said three minutes, cool. Uh, I might go into four, but that's it. Is I, I, I'm just not keeping attention of time, so I don't actually know. But I am. Okay. So, um, in the last, uh, the best level of Demon Souls is the final level of the Valley of Defilement, which the whole concept of it is that you are going into this valley, and uh, it's where all the filth of the world goes. It's where like all of the like aborted babies go, and it's where all the sick people go, and the, the plague victims, and people who aren't wanted. And Jesus. yeah, it's rough. And uh, the this maiden uh, <clears throat> was sent down there with her knight to cleanse this place, uh, to get the demons out of there. And instead, when she got there, she felt such sympathy for the beings down there and the fact that they were discarded and weren't cared for and no one loved them, essentially, <laughs> that she had a crisis of faith and was like, how could this God that I believe in allow this to happen to people and allow this to happen to these beings that should be getting cared for? So she gives her, essentially she gives herself into the demons and uses that power uh, to be able to save everybody or be able to like protect everyone in there. And the entire time you're playing through this level, she's asking you to leave. And then finally, if you beat her knight and you go and approach her, she just gives up. You don't even get to fight her. She's just like, if this is what you want, then... I asked you to leave, but I clearly I can't fight you, so I just give up. And that's such a like a dispiriting thing, and such a, a a painful thing to experience in the game. And it's done all through gameplay and some like diegetic dialogue. That's okay, my I'm ringing my bell now. Okay, yes, uh, that is perfect because that's what I wanted to say about the fact that Demon Souls fucking owns Derek. Well, time to pop the stack. Yes, our winners today are Gran Torino and Psycho, who will go against each other. In round number two, we have given the people four podcasts for the price of one. We have given them the usual episode of Millbrow Madness. We gave them a fucking QAnon podcast at the top, uh, a fucking My Favorite Murder ripoff at the uh, in the middle, and an Ursatz Besties ripoff at the end. <laughs> God. Four pods for the price of one. Your favorite could not possibly. Uh, where can people find you, Derek? Is that what we're doing oh, next? Oh, boy. Yeah, I think Plugs is... Oh, man. We... I keep saying that we got to tighten up our shit, but we have just gotten... Ever since we came back, we've just gotten more and more... Okay, to be fair, this is partly because I, A, thought I was going to get killed, and B, have been coughing a bunch, so... All right, so, plugs. 
if you like this, this miasma of takes Go that to is Tantus.com. They got some. They got, they got some plugs. Tantusinc.com, I apologize. Of, uh, of the anal kind? Yeah, that was the joke, except I fucked it up. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you fucked it up. I think I just went and explained it. <laughs> um, then uh, you can get in touch with the show in several ways, mostly just two. Uh, you can get uh, in touch with us on Twitter. The show is at MiddlebrowPod, or you can drop us a line at MiddlebrowMadness at gmail.com. We are still soliciting vegetarian and vegan recipes, opinions on the picts, Bollywood recommendations, and surely a bunch of other shit that I've forgotten uh, since the beginning of this show that we've been soliciting. Um, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell it is you use to listen to this bullshit. Um, we are uh, proud. Uh, we are a proud, proud member of the Noise Space Podcast Network, run by my friend Matt, and also your friend Matt. I would, I would suspect. Uh, yes, I, I, I would agree. That's- Matt is also my friend. That's not two dudes named Matt. That's one guy who's both our friends. Um, if you want to get in touch with us specifically, uh, I am on Twitter at Derek underscore G. Isabella is on Twitter at Space Jam Fan. We are both on Letterboxd at those same handles. And to uh, whet your appetite for what is surely going to be a two and a half hour long episode, uh, the matchups for next time are going to be The Kid versus Gone with the Wind. And the Green Mile versus Diabolique. What? <laughs> uh, one of those is okay. going to be an upset, I feel. But um, I will say real quick um, that it's actually middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. It's middlebrowpod on... Uh, oh, did I, me- did I mess it up? Uh, yes, you did. Also... Okay, oh, well... Oh, whoa. Whoa. Well, what? Um, I actually I realized that because I was just logging into our email and we got a hella long email on M uh, from Joss. Uh, but Joss, we will read that next week because I'm going to die We're running soon, a bit long. So, um, so yeah, middlebrowmadness at gmail.com is our email. Middlebrowpod is our handle on Twitter. Don't get it twisted as I just did. So now, for the love of God, say your name so we can end this. I'm Pop Gunner, professional hydroplane racer. And I'm Derek Guiding. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Good night. I ain't even got a joke, I was just... I'm not gonna spend. <laughs>